Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, Remastered, Episode 16, To the Ends of the Earth. We start off this episode by stating what everyone and their mother knows about India, courtesy of our dear friend Herodotus. For some reason, the outer reaches of the inhabited world were allotted the most attractive features, just as Greece has gained by far the most temperate climate, India, for example, is the most easternly part of the inhabited world, as I remarked a short while ago, and it contains, in the first place, living creatures, both animals and birds, which are far larger than those to be found in other countries, the only exception being that their horses are inferior to the breed in Medea, known as Nisanian horses. And, in the second place, there is also an unlimited quantity of gold there, which is either dug out of the ground, or washed down from the hills by river, or taken from the ants in the way I have described. There are also wild trees there, which produce a kind of wool which is more attractive and of a better quality than sheep's wool, and which is used by the Indians for their clothing. See Herodotus, Book 3, Chapter 106. It was a known fact that India was immensely wealthy. I hope that all of you have noticed that this is not at all true. India was wet. There were heavy monsoons. It was not a rich land. There were huge rivers and huge armies. The natives were fierce fighters and had elephants. In short, India was no place the conquering army wanted to be. The opposite of what was said in the brochure. I think you can see where this is going. As stated in the last episode, Alexander was beginning to have trouble with his men, as there were several conspiracies against his life. You see, while Alexander wanted to conquer the world, to be the greatest individual the world had ever seen, your average grunt didn't see things that way. They'd been fighting to avenge Greece from the Persian Wars, the sacking of Athens, Hadn't that been done? Just why were they marching through snowdrifts in the Asian mountains, fighting tribesmen thousands of miles from home? Two reasons. Alexander's charisma is the first. Alexander was inspiring. He led the charges in battle. The troops loved him. They may not have wanted to be there, but Alexander did, so they would fight for him. Way back while Alexander was by the Caspian, with a smaller section of his army, he was worried that the troops wouldn't follow him. So, while the force was separated, he spoke to the force that he was leading, telling them what would happen if they went home, rather than fully destroy the Persian Empire. And that he felt he was being abandoned. He was trying to conquer the world for his men. Were they really going to let him do it alone? No. They would fight for him. The second reason was India. There is only one real way I can help you understand what Alexander's soldiers were thinking. If your boss told you, and no, you really don't want to do this piece of work, but if you do, you're going on the next space mission to Mars, you'd have some understanding of what the Greek soldiers were thinking. To the Greeks, India was another world, a place of legends. To go there was definitely something to tell the grandkids, and everyone back home you knew, really. 
Of course you were going to go there. So imagine the soldiers' disappointment when India turned out to be nothing like the stories. Now, with this disappointment in mind, imagine then being told to cross what were, in the Greeks' view, the biggest rivers on the earth to go fight an army 20 times larger than the one that almost destroyed you a few weeks back. There is no way you're crossing that river. But that is for later. For the moment, we'll cover the march into India. It is 3.26. Alexander has spent the previous winter securing his route into India, and is at the city of Nysa on his route to the river Indus. Nysa was supposedly founded by Dionysus, after his conquest of India, before his return march to Greece. The citizens of Nysa stated this as a reason as to why Alexander should let them remain free. Their proof? Nysa was the only place in India that ivy grew. This was good enough for Alexander. The city would be free. Alexander then marched on from Nysa, reaching the river Indus. The Indus is almost 2,000 miles, just over 3,000 kilometres, is the 22nd longest river in the world. But in the world of Alexander, it was the second longest. Only the Ganges surpassed it. Interestingly, the Ganges is in fact 300 miles shorter than the Indus. But it was 2,000 years ago. We can give the ancients some leeway. Alexander reached the Indus to find that Hephaestion had already bridged the river with ships and was presented with gifts from Talaxes, the king the king of Taxila, the largest city between the Indus and the Hydaspes, the modern Jerusalem. Taxiles gave him 200 talons of silver, 3,000 oxen, over 10,000 sheep, 30 elephants, and 700 cavalry. Quite a nice present. After crossing the Indus, Alexander made for Taxila, and was received well by Taxiles, as you would expect, given the present. Plutarch recounts that Taxiles said to Alexander, Why should we fight battles with one another? You have not come here to rob us of water, or the necessities of life, and these are the only things for which sensible men are obliged to fight. As for other kinds of wealth and property, so-called, if I possess more than you, I am ready to be generous towards you, and if I have less, I shall not refuse any benefits you may offer. See Plutarch Alexander, chapter 59. To this, Alexander said he would fight Taxiles to the last, but only in terms of the services he offered. Oh, Alexander, you card you. He then offered Taxiles as much territory as he wanted. How nice. He then did the usual Alexander things, seeing representatives from the hill tribes, appointed a new governor, and held sacrifices and games. He left those unfit to serve at Taxia, before advancing to the Hydaspes. This is good, but at the Hydaspes was an army waiting to face him. That's bad. This army was led by Porus, king of the Paravas. Their kingdom lay between the Hydaspes and the Akesenes. Alexander had 34,000 infantry, 700 cavalry, while Porus had either 2,000 infantry, as stated by Plutarch, 30,000, stated by Arian, 
or 50,000 stated by Diodorus. I'm going to go, as I usually do, with Arian and pick 30,000. He also had two to 4,000 cavalry, 1,000 chariots, and one or 200 elephants. If Alexander wanted to carry on his conquest, he would have to cross through and conquer the land of Porus. And Porus did not want this to happen. And so begins the last of our great battles. The Battle of the Hydaspes River. Well, when I say begins, what I really mean is the two armies stared at each other and no battle happened. Why, I hear you ask. Because the Hydaspes River was between them. It was midsummer and the water level in the river was at its highest point. It would be a difficult river to cross, and after you've done such an arduous task, the enemy would strike. What Alexander needed was to be a bit sneaky. Alexander announced that he would wait for autumn before crossing, but at the same time, he made preparations for crossing. If opportunity came, he had to be ready. He couldn't cross where Porus was waiting for him, so he had to find another spot, and he did. Seventeen miles upstream, there was an island in the middle of the river that could be used for the crossing. Alexander couldn't just march his army to the island and cross. He would be seen by Porus, who would then follow him. So, Alexander marched up and down the river at night, making a lot of noise, and Porus followed. But as the days turned into weeks, the Indians grew acclimatised to the Macedonians doing this, and stopped paying too much attention. On the selected night, Alexander was able to move a considerable portion of his force to the crossing point without the Indians noticing. He did not take all his men. He left a reasonable portion of them behind with Craterus as a feint. It was a stormy night. This helped Alexander greatly, as he couldn't be heard over the noises of the torrential rain and thunder. Shortly before dawn, the weather improved, and Alexander made the crossing to the island. Once he had made it to the other side of the island, he was spotted by Indian patrols. There was enough time for Alexander to make it to the mainland, though, which did take some time, as once he reached what he thought was the mainland, it turned out that it was another island, and he had a third crossing to make. So, what was Porus to do? He could see the Macedonians opposite the river, but yet Alexander had crossed. Which of these was the main force, and which was a feint? He decided to send a force of 2,000 cavalry and 130 chariots upstream to see how large Alexander's force was. This force was to be led by his son, also called Porus. This may make things confusing, but luckily for us, the force sent against Alexander was destroyed, and this younger Porus was killed. As upsetting as this may have been to Porus, the expedition had done its job. He knew Alexander's force was the main force, and so sent his army up to face him. As Alexander marched towards Porus, the river was on his right. He adopted quite a standard formation, the phalanx in the centre, with cavalry and light troops on both wings, protecting the flanks with himself on the right, while Porus lined up with his infantry in the centre, the elephants in front of the infantry, 
with cavalry on both wings. Although aware that Alexander liked to leech the charge, he focused the Indian cavalry on the Indian left. Battle was imminent. As the armies got closer and closer, Alexander's mounted archers on the Macedonian left began to fire at the Indians. Seeing how disrupted they were, he moved most of the cavalry round from the right of his army to the left. Although Alexander stayed on the right, the left was led by Quinus. Alexander used his phalanx to pin down the enemy, elephants and infantry, while sending Quinus to face the Indian right wing. His superior cavalry numbers destroyed the Indian cavalry on the Indian right, so the Macedonian left could swing around the back of the Indian army. Aware of what was going on, the Indian right turned around to face the oncoming threat, but then Alexander charged, and the Indian left was hit from both sides at the same time. The Indian left wing also destroyed. Craterus could advance from across the river and hit the Indian infantry in the rear, along with the Macedonian cavalry, and Porus was surrounded. Alexander had won. The Indians lost around 20,000, either captured or killed, while Diodorus puts Alexander's losses at 1,000. This would be a high number for a victor. Alexander then sent Taxiles to Porus, asking Porus to surrender, as Alexander wanted to spare his life. Porus and Taxiles were enemies, so Porus tried attacking Taxiles with his elephant. Taxiles was okay, and other messengers were used. Eventually, Porus surrendered. Alexander made him a client king and expanded his territory. Now, some historians question whether Alexander really won this battle. Is giving away territory something a victor does? Why did Alexander have to negotiate with Porus? Why wasn't he captured? These are fair questions. Then again, in the past we've seen that Alexander could offer clemency. Maybe this was just another example. I'm unsure on where to stand on this issue. It may have been a stalemate, or a victory, but what is important to take away from this is that Alexander suffered considerable losses against a smaller army. This would not be lost on his men. Alexander founded two cities while in India. I mention this as one of them is of particular interest. Bucephala If you remember way back to episode 4, you'll recall Alexander's horse Bucephalus. Alexander was able to calm down Bucephalus when no one else could. Up to 20 years and thousands of miles later, Bucephalus finally died of old age. Alexander still used him in battles, although he would ride another to approach the battle as Bucephalus was old. He was stolen while in the mountains of Central Asia, and Alexander was furious, issuing an edict that he would kill every man in the country until he was brought back. It's quite nice to name a city after the horse, I think. Alexander carried on his crossings of the Indian rivers, crossing the Akesenes. He continued advancing, taking the town of Sangala, this was another difficult battle. Arian reports 17,000 Indian dead, with Macedonian losses at under 100, 
This may not seem that significant, but the sources do tend to exaggerate foreign losses while minimising those of their own. And Arian does mention 1,200 wounded for Alexander, something he calls disproportionately high. India was proving very difficult to combat. It is at this point that Alexander reached the river Hyphasis. Reports came in that the country beyond the Hyphasis was good. The government was mostly aristocratic, but there was an orderly and efficient social system, and there were more elephants, but these were larger and more courageous. This made Alexander thrilled. He loved adventure, and was ready to advance into India. But his troops did not see things this way. They were worried and depressed by Alexander's continuous campaigns. They were disappointed that India was not what they thought it was. It was not a land of gold, and the natives were fierce. This was the final straw. You see, the ancient Greeks were under the impression that India was a peninsula, sticking out to the east of Asia. They quickly worked out that this was not the case. They thought they were about to reach the edge of land. Then Alexander would have to turn back. Instead, they were told that land went on for hundreds of miles, if not thousands. They would have been furious to find out they still had two to three thousand miles to go before they reached the Pacific Ocean. They were furious that not only were they to cross this huge river, but then Alexander wanted to cross the Ganges. They were told the river was four miles wide and 600 feet deep, and waiting across the river, the armies of India were uniting against them. They heard the kings of Gandharidai and Pricey were waiting for them with a force of 80,000 cavalry, 200,000 infantry, 8,000 chariots and 6,000 elephants. They were not impressed. They had been badly hurt by a force of 30,000, and now Alexander wanted to fight one 300,000 strong. Needless to say, I do sympathise with Alexander's men. Alexander was told that the troops were grumbling, and he spoke to them. He reminded them of everything they had done together. Were they really going to abandon him? Silence. Alexander asked if anyone had anything to say. Silence. Did anyone think differently than him? Silence. The officers did not agree with him, but they didn't want to make an unprepared reply. Finally, Coinus spoke. He told Alexander to look at the Greeks and Macedonians who were still with him. So many had died. Those that were left wanted nothing more than to go home. It would be futile to lead an army whose hearts were not in it. Why not return home, gather a new army, and then invade India? Or any other nation he may choose. As a successful commander, he must know when it was time to stop. Applause. Some men wept. Fury. Alexander dismissed the meeting. The next day. Alexander told them he had other officers. They would follow him. He would go on. He dismissed the meeting. He went to his tent. Then nothing. He refused to come out. To see anyone. 
for three days. He knew they would change their minds if only he gave them a chance. Silence. They were annoyed he'd burst out in anger at them. They wouldn't weaken their resolve. They wouldn't fall for the same trick and be emotionally blackmailed again. Alexander offered sacrifices to see the omens on crossing the river. They were bad. He sent for his most senior companions, his closest friends. He gave in. He announced that they were to withdraw. They were going home. If you've enjoyed today's episode, visit the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com. I'll see you next week, when we follow Alexander on his journey home.